Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. 1648, the Peace of Westphalia is the idea that certain countries were able to have their own religion and didn't have to come under the dominance of the Catholic Church. The idea is the Protestants were to let the Catholics live in peace and the Catholics were to let the the, uh, Protestants live in peace. And certain countries start taking on their own form of Christianity, as we'll see. So that's kind of where that that line of demarcation happens, is is that that treaty in 1648. Okay, so let's read that text. And and to the angel of the church of Sardis. Sardis obviously means those escaping. Sardis means those escaping. Obviously, you can see why this is the church of the Reformation. What were they escaping? The Catholic Church. They were escaping the Catholic Church. So it makes sense that the name Sardis applies to them. These things says he that has the seven spirits of God. Now that's interesting because after every, after every, uh, church, he'll say something about the Messiah. Uh, and it says at this point that he has the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God is the Holy Spirit. This is encounter to this church of Sardis, who does not possess the Holy Spirit, because as you'll see, they are dead. They do not possess life. They do not possess the Holy Spirit. So, you can see the counter of this in the in, with the Messiah and the seven stars, the, the churches, or the angels of the churches. I know your works, that you have a name that you live, and you are dead. You have a name that you live, but you are dead. Now, this has come to under, uh, us to understand that after the initial Reformation happened, what a lot of the churches did is establish what's called creeds. Creeds and belief system about what they believe the Scriptures to teach. And some of the creeds are, are very good. They, they, they show good doctrine, unlike what the Catholic Church did. Their creeds were very bad. Like the Apostles' Creed, uh, for instance, it didn't have anything about salvation. It had everything about the Trinity, but it didn't have anything about salvation. So now the creeds start getting formed. Creeds are very good because they establish what someone believes. For instance, we have in our church not so much a creed, but a statement of faith. This is what we believe. But here's the deal. It's only good if those who are in the church are born again and actually believe it. But if you have creeds, but your church is not full of believers, then it's dead. And that's what happened in the Protestant Reformation. It started out great, had good creeds, but the people in the churches were completely dead or not saved. Why? Because here's the problem. The Protestant church that came out of the Catholic church did not change what started back in Pergamum. What happened in Pergamum? Constantine married the church with the state. The Catholic Church then took over Thyatira, and they were still married to the state. In fact, the Catholic Church controlled all the states in Europe. Now you have the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation was started by priests. 
who wanted to reform the Catholic Church. Many of the priests didn't want to leave the Catholic Church. They simply wanted to reform it. That being the case, a lot of them took with them, as they left the Catholic Church, a lot of the baggage of the Catholic Church with them. And the, the one, number one baggage that they carried with them was keeping the church married to the state. So if you went to Germany, if you went to Scandinavia, your official governmental church was Lutheran. That's right. It's it pretty much the same way the Catholic Church did. Because if you're a citizen of Germany, it meant you're a citizen of the Lutheran Church. And the way to become a citizen was to be baptized. So that's why, they, you know, one of the reasons they continued infant baptism was that was a mark of, of being a member of Germany or the, the town you were in. No one went unbaptized, by the way. No, no child went unbaptized because that meant you didn't have citizenship. So they started, you know, that there came another man-made reason why children were baptized or babies were baptized and infants were baptized. That being the case, so if you went to Switzerland, you were under Calvin, a Calvinistic church. If you were in another part of Switzerland, you were under Zwingli. Zwingli uh, was the leader and that was the church they went under. If you were in Britain, you were an Anglican. If you're in Scotland, you're a Presbyterian. And that was the official state church that you had to belong to in order to be a member of that society. Do you see the problem with that? That's a big problem. So to be a citizen of Germany automatically makes you a member of the church. Then where's their profession of faith? Aha, they don't have one. So the churches, what Scripture is telling you, they weren't alive, they had good creeds, and yes, there were a pocket of, of believers in them, a remnant, but for the most part, the churches were completely dead. Dead because they had, they were made up of unconverted people that belonged to the church because they're members of the state. And you obviously see, see the problem with that. Let me add one more thing into it. As brutal as the Catholic Church was in killing and, and martyring true Christians. The Reformation Church did the same. They were just as mean, just as evil in killing people as the Catholic Church. In a lot of ways, the Reformers took with them the idea of being their own Pope over the countries that they were in. And they, and they used the state as a form of discipline. So if someone didn't jive with Calvin or Zwingli or Anglicanism or Presbyterianism, they took the sword and they killed you. If you didn't go by their theology, they would kill you. And this is some, has some to question of how could these guys even be Christians then? How could Calvin, if you look at Calvin's history, be a, be a Christian in the way he dealt with people. He was a mean tyrant who killed people. Anti-Semitic. Luther became anti-Semitic later in his life. Completely anti-Semitic. So, so anti he wrote a book against the Jews. 
He got in there, he thought the Jews would respond to the gospel, not knowing all that you and I know. He had a Roman Catholic version of things, a replacement theology. So he thought, well, with this new truth, I'll go down there and they'll just simply accept it. Well, he went down to the Jews and they rejected it. And I understand why. And then he says, well, fine, if they're going to reject it, then we just need to kill them. That's the politics. Yeah, they, they excuse it away. Yeah, I know. I've heard that so many times. They just excuse it away. And they say, you don't know the climate it was, Brandon. You don't know how it was over there in that area. And they, that, that's kind of what they did. And it's like, wait a second. Was murder wrong? Right. Exactly. Because murder in the New Testament and the Old Testament is the same. You can't get past it. And then to create a theocracy, which is the church was never created for, and use the state to execute church discipline by killing you, I don't see anywhere in Matthew 18 where it says to kill the person if he doesn't repent. It doesn't say that. It's just expel the moral, the immoral person out of the church. But they took it to say, no, we can kill them. Because before then, where did they learn this from? The Catholic Church was killing people left and right. The Catholic Church b- truly believed this. This is how crazy this was. That they could exact punishment here and now to help the person get out of purgatory. And so they would inflict, you saw the, you see these movies when they put them on the rack and they burn them at the stake or they torture them to get them to confess something. In their minds, they were helping the person out get out of purgatory by confessing and then going to heaven if they confess their sin of being a whatever, a heretic or whatever, and they repent. And so they tortured people, killed people. Estimations, best historical estimations is that the Catholic Church killed about 50 million people. 50 million people. That's conservative, I believe. Okay, so Calvin and Luther and and all these guys, Wingley, they saw this coming out of the Catholic Church, so they just started doing the same practice. And so you got people like the Anabaptists that say, no, 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 you shouldn't be baptizing kids for, you know, that's not right, it's not biblical. And they say, fine, you want to be baptized? They tie them up, throw them over the lake, and say, there is your baptism, and drown them. And drown them in front of their mothers, watching. You want to be baptized? This is what we'll have to baptize you. Now, how Christian is that? I have a hard time embracing a lot of the reformers for what they did. Their actions don't match their doctrine. Do you, you know, if you had, they had incredible creeds, but yet, it, it looks like they didn't believe in those creeds because of the way they acted towards people. How do you murder somebody? Now, I understand King David murdered somebody, but he repented. I see no repentance in these guys' life. I see no change of, oh man, that was really wrong, and they write in their memoirs, I never should have done that, I repent, and you know, you never see that. They felt fully justified in killing people. So this is why... Before I even start a debate with somebody about Reformed theology, Covenantal theology, or Calvinism, I want to know what their view of the Reformers is. I want to know if they idolize these guys or they see history for what it was. These guys were brutal. Absolute brutal. And so I don't, I don't, I don't embrace Luther. I don't embrace Calvin. I don't embrace Wingley. I don't embrace those guys simply because 
they, they acted counter to Christian values. I don't understand it. If I'm wrong, then you show me in history how they were such good guys. I understand leaving the Catholic Church. I understand how difficult that was. I get it. They put their lives on the line. But that didn't, that doesn't excuse them from turning around and doing it to other people. It doesn't make sense. Right? Therein lies what we studied on Sunday about Christians causing the unbelievers to blaspheme the way of truth. Because when you look at Calvin, you look at Luther, the way their actions look at from a secular world, they say, those guys are crazy headhunters, man. They're, they're no different than the jihadists. And so, yeah, it's given a lot of room for a lot of secular people to say, hey, what's up with that, man? That doesn't seem right. And obviously the Catholic Church hasn't done anything to help because of killing 50 million people um, and, and is indiscriminately. Man, you know, you're making a good point because um, I don't know when that started happening. Obviously, the further back you go, the guys I've read in, in history, the further back you go and the closer they are to the Reformation, the more they seem to understand what happened and have a balanced view of things. But it seems that the further we get away from the Reformation, if you get into the last hundred years of the writers, they start glorifying those guys. And I don't know where that line is. It just seems like a gradual thing that happened. And I can tell you this. When you, when guys go to seminary and they study this, they don't study that. They just don't study the history of it. They'll study the doctrines they came up with, but they won't cover what these men lived like in their personal lives. And, and, and simply editing their personal lives makes these seminary students think, wow, Luther was great and Calvin was great. These guys were heroes, but then they don't show, they edit the history just simply by not teaching it. So, I know now that's why you have this resurgence of the, we call them the neo-Calvinists coming out of the seminaries now. Of, I would say everybody my age and younger are these neo-Calvinists. And that's the way it's presented in, in um, seminaries now to these kids and Bible colleges. I don't know what's up. Somebody is writing these textbooks and simply deleting that out of history. Like, that didn't happen. Maybe you got Calvinists writing the history and they don't want to put that in there because it disparages their view of their or their founder, much like what you see with the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. They don't like you talking about Joseph Smith or Charles Pace Russell because their their past is so checkered. It causes red flags to go up about the the system. It was Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary he called it the glorification of the worm, and. Um, when you don't, you fail to glorify God, you, you start glorifying man. You, you, you glorify a worm. And I think that's what starts happening. You start glorifying Calvin or, and, uh, Luther or whatever. And, uh, these guys have serious deficits. Serious deficits. And not only in, in their, in their behavior, but in their theology. That segues into what I want to go into. Well, that's where they're trying to do a counter-reformation to the Reformation. And say, really, there's no differences between the Catholics and the Evangelicals. Why don't you all come back home? And there's been a concerted push by the Catholic Church to bring Protestants back into the, the mother church, so to speak. And what they're trying to do is downplay the Reformation. Uh, downplay the, the theology that came out of that, of, you know, salvation by grace through faith. And say, 
Look, folks, there's really no difference. We just we disagree on secondary issues, which is not true. But they have captured a lot of the emergent church, a lot of the young guys, uh, uh, seeker friendlies like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, to push that. And Rick being the biggest pusher of returning to the Catholic Church, he stated himself they're they're brothers and sisters in the, in Christ, and that there's no really differences. It's just secondary issues. We we agree on the essentials. And then you had the Vatican send a representative group of cardinals out to Saddleback and consult him. The, 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 the staff pastor at Saddleback is an ex-Catholic. He was trained by Jesuits. And he's, he's the pastor at, um, the staff pastor at Saddleback. So what's going on there? So what you're starting to see is a lot of the liberal evangelicals have no problem putting themselves under the Catholic Church. The, the biggest surprise is the charismatics and the 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 uh, word of faith movement had a big time uh, with the Pope with last year or a year and a half ago. Uh, they talked to the Pope himself, you know, via Skype or whatever, and basically they said the same thing. There's really no difference between us and the Roman Catholic Church. And you're, I'm talking about Ken Copeland and that kind of element. There was like ten thousand of these word of faith pastors at a conference agreeing that, you know, the Reformation's over. Kenneth Copeland always got said the Reformation's over. We're going back. Well, not me, brother. I'm not getting on that train. I came out of that train. I don't want to get back on that. And yet, people are saying, yeah, the Catholics, they're no different than us. So, to your point, there's a counter-Reformation going on right now. I really think so. Because, so, so let's, let's, let's dovetail on what he just said. Is it a game of semantics? Yes, I do. I believe that because I say, I believe the way Satan presents the, his bad theology is just simply a new package with a new bow and a new wrapping. But it's the same lie. Okay? So let's talk about the carryovers that the reformers brought with them from the Catholic Church. Okay? The first one, the biggest one, replacement theology. That is part and parcel Catholic Church. That is part and parcel of the Alexandrian school that started that. That the church has replaced Israel. That the church is the new Israel. We're the new theocracy. You see the problem with that. You see the problem with the Catholics saying they're a theocracy. That means they can execute people like Israel did. So then they bring replacement theology with them, that they're the new Israel... And so they have the power to execute people, to, to enforce capital punishment. And that, that replacement theology is extremely dangerous. Dangerous. Not only is it anti-Semitic, and, and the Catholic Church is anti-Semitic, it made Luther anti-Semitic. It made Calvin anti-Semitic. They're all, the reformers were anti-Semitic. For some reason, Reformed theology causes one to drift into that. I'm not saying everybody that's replacement theology automatically becomes that. I'm just saying it's an easy step to go there. Okay, that becomes dangerous, obviously, to the Jews. The other thing that becomes dangerous then with replacement theology is a danger to humanity, danger to the Jews, but then it becomes a danger in... And how you view the world, if I can put that in certain terms. What do you mean by that? Well, typically, 
Replacement theology has attached to it what's called postmillennialism or amillennialism. Because of that, they either don't believe there's a kingdom or that the kingdom is spiritual, or in a postmillennial view, they believe that they're going to have the ability to usher in the kingdom without Jesus. That they'll establish kingdom conditions and then Jesus returns. This postmillennial view of replacement theology is very popular among our, our younger evangelical churches and younger pastors and younger congregations, and it's gaining ground throughout America. They're going to bring in millennial conditions without Messiah. It's very dangerous to think that way. You would think, you would absolutely think, but I've heard them say, well, that means nothing that can get kicked out again. I mean, it's, it's so bizarre. Because of their mindset, they don't see that as relevant. They don't see anything that's going on in the Middle East. They're completely blinded to it. They, they have blinded themselves to it. And, yeah, I mean, it's just like the, when Jesus came the first time, standing right in front of their face and they can't see him. And that's what's happening with prophecy today. you got things happening and most of the evangelical worlds can't see it. They're like, what's the big deal? So that's the danger of replacement theology. Just the point of history... When the, the, the Plymouth Brethren came over and a lot of the people were escaping the Anglican Church from England and coming to America and then getting established here, whether it was the Catholics uh, or any, any of the Protestants, they all had a replacement view of theology. They took that out to its logical extension, my friends. So when they got to this new world, they pictured themselves like Joshua coming into the promised land. Do you see the problem with that? You think you're the new Israel, this is the promised land, and we're going to take the promised land. What is the problem with that? What do you think they started doing when they saw the Indians? They said, these are the Amalekites. Let's kill them. And a lot of Indians were slaughtered because of this replacement theology mindset that they're a theocracy, they're taking the land, and they're going to push the inhabitants out of the land and kill them, just like Joshua did under direct order from God to do. Do you see how crazy that is? That is insane. Because they weren't under direct order from God. The church is not a theocracy, but yet they thought it was because of replacement theology. Replacement theology is extremely dangerous. Very dangerous. And it plays right into the hands of Islam and any group that hates the Jews. So you shouldn't be surprised to find evangelical Christians like Bill Hybels and his wife and like guys like Hank Hanegraaff doing pro-Palestinians types of theology things and, and, and saying that anyone that is Zionistic is racist. Hank Hanegraaff says we are racist because we support the Jews. That we're the problem. Well, just because I'm a Christian Zionist doesn't mean I'm against Arabs. That has nothing to do with it. I'm, I'm saying that I believe Israel has the right to the land. It's not Arab land. It's not anyone else's land but the Jews. That's all I'm saying. Israel has, says they can live in there and, and if they'll act peaceful, but they don't. Because they don't want Israel to exist. So, replacement theology got brought in. So, let's just stop right there. Any questions on replacement theology? You got it. So, if you want to see that one world religion, the marks of it, the one mark is anti-Semitism. 
I told you, Satan works and he just wraps the package up in a different... He hates the Jews. So whether he's working through Islam or he's working for the church, through the church, he'll create a doctrine that's anti-Semitic. Oh no, I understand what you're saying. Yes. That's right. Because he'll, he'll say that in the, the, the bottom of the letter. He'll say to those who are escaping. The, the term is those who are, Sardis means those escaping this. And, and so you can put that on, not only escaping the Catholic Church, but escaping this deadness. And so yes, there's true, it's true. You have to say it even when the, the Reformation happened because they didn't have a full developed theology, uh, especially in prophecy like we do now. So, you know, a lot of their carryover was Catholic. And so yet you have to say there was a remnant of believers there, absolutely. And I would say yes, not everybody that believes in covenant theology or, uh, or post-millennial reform is an unbeliever. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the doctrine they produce is deadly and, and leads into very, very bad practices. But no doubt, I, I wouldn't challenge their salvation. I know guys in town that are all-millennial covenantal five-point and I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm just saying their theology has some gaps in it that are causing problems and can lead other people into some dangerous areas. So yeah, you have to say there's a remnant. But for the majority, historically, the, the historical church, Christ is calling it dead. So what that tells you is the majority of this church is not saved. Now that's hard to think about. Because you think, man, the Catholics are bad, but then Jesus is coming down on the Protestants. Saying they're no better. They have good creeds, they have the appearance of being alive, but they're dead too. What's another doctrine that came through? The way of interpreting Scripture. Now, it's interesting that the Reformers got the doctrine of, of faith alone correct. And it's funny that they employed literal, hermeneutical, consistent uh, her, uh, hermeneutics on passages that dealt with soteriology, like in Romans, but then they jumped the prophecy and they use Augustinian interpretive hermeneutics. Which, as you know, August, Augustinian hermeneutics is spiritualizing eschatology or allegorizing it. That's what he, has, he learned from Origen. That's where they got uh, from the school of Alexandria that carries through today through Protestantism. So this is why you go to some Protestant churches and they completely don't have an eschatology because they have Augustinian eschatology. Catholic eschatology. There is no eschatology. Spiritual or whatever it is. So you have that today. So this is why, and you know, like I've said, you know, 70% of the churches don't get eschatology. They don't have one. And that's a carryover from Protestant Reformation. So we got church and state, placement theology, interpretive methods, and then the lack of prophecy. Calvin, Luther did not develop anything beyond what they knew about the second coming. They were completely de deficient in that theology, and so it was left behind. So what ended up happening is, believe it or not, the Plymouth Brethren are the ones that started rediscovering what the Scriptures meant on prophecy. And you know what they did? They said, why don't we take this in a literal, plain sense? And then they started reading it. And then all of a sudden, it broke it open.
And they were the ones that really started rediscovering what the early church held, which we now know, we call it premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational view. They'll, the proponents of the opponents of this will say, well, John Darby came up with this scheme, and, and you guys are just following John Darby. No, we're not. He simply discovered it. It was already there. In fact, there were more writers before John Darby that had already said they believed in premillennialism. The challenge went out one time. They, uh, one guy challenged a dispensationalist guy. I think it was Tommy I saying, you, you find me one premillennial before John Darby, and I'll give you 10,000 bucks. And he lost that bet because Tommy Ice pointed out a bunch of guys in history that were premillennial way before John Darby. Way before John Darby. All the way back to the early church, uh, with the, the, the killingism and, and, uh, like guys like Papias and stuff. So that being the case, the guy lost because you can show that the early church did have a premillennial view. It is the only view that makes sense if you take it literally. It's, it's the only thing that works. Otherwise, you have to reinterpret the scripture and make it say things you don't want it to say. This is why those, those elements have hurt the church because they were missing in, in the Reformation. Well, I think what, the, the, I would start with the, the, the core issues that you've got to get down. And the core issues is the literal sense of the scriptures, okay? And that means that you've got to believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. You have to believe that to understand the kingdom. If you do not get that, you miss it. So, right, so you, that's what you start with. Okay, we're on the same page. Yeah, you believe in a thousand years? Yes, I believe in a thousand years. Do you believe in a literal seven-year tribulation? Yes, I believe in a literal seven-year tribulation. Okay, great. Now we can debate where the rapture needs to be placed. I think I can prove very, very easy that the rapture is pre-tribulational. And then they're going to go, I know the passages they use for mid-trib and post-trib. But nonetheless, that's where you start. You start with foundational stuff, and really it's the timelines of things. Do you do they have their timelines right? And if they do, okay, I can work with that. But if they don't, you know, and they don't they 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 allegorize the thousand years, we, we can't even start anywhere. We can't even if they don't believe in a literal seven year tribulation, we can't even start anywhere. We've got to get there. And if if I can't find that common ground, I just stop it. I don't go any further. Because that means they have an interpretive problem. Yeah. There's mid-trib, post-trib. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would agree that they're taken in, in a literal plain sense. I think when you start looking at how, why they say it's a, a, like a, a mid-trib or post-trib, a lot of them are having to debate on what the idea of wrath is. That's what the debate is. And they're debating if the first seal judgments are wrath or not. And their debate is that those are man-made wrath. I come back and say, well, then what do you do with chapter 6 as the wrath of the Lamb? And so they, they debate that. That's where the debate is. I say it's the wrath of the Lamb. So I say the first six judgments are judgment. So that means the church can't be here. Because they would agree it's, it's double jeopardy if the church gets punished. And we can't. We're promised not to be condemned. So they'll say, well, we don't believe that's, that's uh, the wrath. Then the post-trib guys say, no, we're preserved all the way through. And they'll, they'll, and then it comes down to an interpretive passage of, of, of Revelation 3.10. Of, I'll keep you out of that time of trial 
They just say, no, that means in Greek going through the time of trial. And I debate with them and I say, no, it means out of that time of trial. And so there's where the debate is. And we don't get any further than that. I think the Greek is very obvious and, and it's, it's out of the time of trial. And I don't think it means through it. So there's where your debate is. So I can live with a guy like that. I can't. I can, yeah, but I can't deal with somebody that thinks we're in the, the kingdom right now. Because their, their modus of operandi is completely foreign to how I deal with life. I'm not saying they're not Christian. I'm just saying their whole worldview changes. So they don't see anything going on in the Middle East as significant. It's just irrelevant to them. So, you could tell them until you're blue in the face it's about, you know, Israel and they're like, huh, what's the big deal? We're the new Israel. You know what I mean? So there's no common ground there. So, Sardis. Okay, let's continue real quick and then we'll finish. I lost myself. Thank you. Okay, be be you watchful and establish the things that remain, which you which were ready to die. So resurrect the things that are about to die. You know, your congregations are dying because they're, they're, they really are not saved. For I have found no works of yours perfected before my God. Your works are not complete before my God. Why? You have good theology, but you're dead inside your churches. Hmm. Remember, and, and think about, remember, why aren't their works complete? Because of the carryover stuff I pointed out to you from the Catholic Church. They haven't... This is a, a great saying by the Lord because if you want to think about the reformers, think about an incomplete work. They didn't go all the way. They only stopped on justification by faith and no further than that. They didn't develop any theology of ecclesiology, eschatology, anything like that. They simply stopped there. So Christ is saying your works are incomplete in front of my face. Remember, therefore, how you have received and did hear, and keep it and repent. Wants them to repent of this. If therefore you shall not watch, I will come as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, wait a second. That's a warning. I told you, I think I've showed you in First Thessalonians chapter 5, that Paul will make the statement to believers, Jesus does not come as a thief in the night, does he? He comes as a thief in the night to unbelievers. And what is he saying in this text? If you don't repent and get saved, you will be left behind. In what? The rapture and left behind for the tribulation. He is telling the Protestant church, you need to become saved and quit playing a game and get saved so you don't miss the rapture when I come back. See, this idea, I will come as a thief. He only comes as a thief to unbelievers, by the way. But you have a few, there's that remnant, names and starters that did not defile their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The idea they have been saved. That he, uh, he that overcomes shall thus be arrayed in white garments. And I will no wise blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there it is. 
A remnant has not spoiled their garments. They have escaped out of this, this, this deadness. And I promise you eternal life if you accept it. So that's the church, the, the message to the Protestant church even for today. Any questions before we wrap up? You got it. It's the, it's the reverse of what you think. That's right. The book of life has everybody's name written on it, whoever lived. If you don't become saved, your name's blotted out of the book of life. You will not live on in eternity. Not that you're annihilated, don't think that. It's that you will not live with God. You go to hell for all eternity. So your name's blotted out. I know, doesn't it? I mean, when you put it all together, I mean, every, God wrote everybody's name in the book of life already? And He's only going to blot them out if they don't believe? He wanted them to be saved. He desires all men to be saved. I mean, it's really pretty straightforward, isn't it? Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.